0: This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voices of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voices of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued
1: support through his estate planning.
2: Good Schools for All is made possible in part by UC San Diego Extension. UC San Diego Extension has partnered with San Diego Public Library System to bring middle and high school students a series of free, in-depth, and hands-on learning courses in topics like robotics, circuits, messy science, 3D modeling, and college planning. The Library Next program started as a pilot project in six San Diego libraries in early 2017 and is quickly expanding to more library branches throughout the city. This STEAM-centered program is sponsored by UC San Diego Extension's pre-college programs and the San Diego Public Library. Visit www.sandiego.gov librarynext for details. mom says my neighborhood school isn't good enough. How am I supposed to know my kids are getting the best education possible?
3: Welcome to Good Schools for All, a podcast from the investigative news organization Voice of San Diego.
4: We cut through the jargon and polarized debate to get you the news and ideas that matter. Good schools are at the heart of our democracy and economy, and we're about good schools for all kids.
3: We hope you'll learn and maybe teach us something. Enjoy the show.
0: There should be an excellent school in every community
3: welcome to good schools for all my name is Scott Lewis and I'm here with my friend Laura Cohn hello Laura hello Scott how are you
4: I'm doing really well
3: so that last voice of course on the intro is Shirley Weber she's got more going on at the state level pushing for more accountability on how these funds for poorer schools are being spent should be interesting to watch
4: she's having at it she uh, took a run at it last session didn't get too far but she's got a lot of support from some education advocacy group. So I think mm. they'll be going at it again.
3: All right. I have a story. Let's hear it. Uh, It's a story of grit, Laura. <laughs> it's yes. a story of resilience. It's a story. Uh, so one of the things that my son and I have found that we um, like doing is fishing. Yeah. Okay. So we started, he wanted to go fishing and I hadn't been fishing for a long time. It didn't go well. So f- four or five times, six times we go out. I didn't catch anything and he started to doubt this whole thing. Right. Mm-hmm. This this whole thing happens, right? <laughs> so we would go out to the shelter. So finally I started asking questions, watching YouTube videos. It's a real learning curve, man. Like it's a real it's it's not an obvious skill.
4: The fish are wily, aren't they?
3: They're wily and you have to know how to tie knots and all kinds of stuff. I mean it's you, you gotta know what your stuff. You gotta you can't just mess around. Yeah. And I was messing around. So <laughs> I started to learn, I asked questions. I just went to the bait shop and just said, just tell me what to do. So finally I started getting I now I catch fish. And um and so my son had seen me catch fish, but he hadn't actually he hadn't actually done it yet, right? Okay. So we go out onto the pier, Shelter Island, and I get him set up. I've got him set up with six hooks, and he starts just snagging him. And each time he it's just this the fear and excitement in his face is incredible right i mean he's just like and he's reeling it in the wrong way so the line is all over the place i mean it's a total mess finally he catches catches a um a fish and then he's he's sitting there with his pole and i see it start to tug and i'm like Xavier, look it's tugging again. and he goes ah! and he starts getting really scared and he starts reeling it in and he, and he, I mean, he literally can't pull. It's just this big. Ooh. And um, I, we look over, and it's getting tangled with my line. It's just, there's something going on. And I look over and this girl who was excited about, like the whole pier, by the way, is cheering for us. Because of <laughs> yeah. how excited he gets. And this girl comes over and she goes, oh my God, there's five fish. There were f- five fish oh my God. on his line. And he was yeah. trying to pull it up. And he and you should have seen his face as he's pulling it up. He's like, oh, oh, oh. He's just like, <laughs> like 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 so excited. He's pulling. And finally I have to help him because there's five fish on this line. I mean he had six hooks, so it was like this yeah, one yeah. of these bait things. And he's just just terrified and just so excited. I can't I can't bring home just how intense his face was. Finally we get him all over. It's all tangled, everything's totally tangled up, and we start letting him go. Can't keep all these fish. And it, uh, this is it. He's like, I, that's it. That, I've hit the pinnacle of fishing. <laughs> um, but we went on But the, the moral is just keep trying. You just got to keep trying. And how do you teach kids to keep trying?
4: Yeah, it's, that is such a key. Like keep trying, get better, not just keep doing the same thing over and over mm-hmm. again, but like get smarter about it. Ask other people for advice. Um, you know, teach yourself, learn from what you know, take data from your prior failures, and incorporate that. And d- yeah, I honestly think sports are really great, p- and music, mm-hmm. sports and music are two really great places that kids learn those lessons. Um, but educators are really trying to figure out how to o- incorporate it into regular classroom day yeah, too.
3: Just like great. Well, we have a great show. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking. Um, we wanted to bring unions and union representatives and even a superintendent who works with unions to come in and talk about the future of unions
4: yeah one of our one of my favorites of our prior episodes was the conversation that we had um with the president of the poway teachers union we hadn't really touched the issue much since then so i'm really glad we put together this panel and um the conversation is
3: rich yeah so it's an it's a particularly important time for unions Locally, the San Diego Education Association, the the teachers union that works for the San Diego Unified School District, the largest school district in the region, they do not have a contract. They're working on a contract negotiation. It's getting a little bit interesting. Uh, they've there's flyers going around the school campsite or campuses. There's all kinds of um, movement. There's nothing too serious yet, but I've heard rumblings about how um, how it could get more serious. And they've got to figure that out. And nationally, there is a huge Supreme Court decision coming. Um, I'm not sure how soon. I think there's still some steps before it. but but basically, um, the Mark Janice, a, a worker in in Illinois, sued the state and uh, because of of union dues he has to pay or, or at least fees he has to pay, to be a part of a union that he doesn't necessarily support and even though the union bargains on his behalf and now that's gone to the supreme court and the supreme court has what looks like a potential majority to throw out the requirement that um that people who aren't members of unions but are part of a collective bargaining union at the state level um don't have to pay right so they basically would 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 be relieved of that required fee Now, they could still voluntarily, of course, fund the teachers' union, but that would have a major impact on politics. Um, Teachers' unions are big-time supporters of mostly Democratic candidates in places like um, California and in in San Diego. And if that changes, that would would be significant.
4: Yeah, it's a major—one of these major areas where California is out of sync with the national politics and— yeah, this, so this is a bellwether decision for the Supreme Court. California um, will undoubtedly keep in place all the ways that uh, we protect and support labor and unions, but uh, when a constitutional decision is made, it it will trumps. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> it's all
3: right. So the um, discussion, but also I wanted to talk to, there's so much about union discussions in education that becomes so, so toxic as far as, uh, people's feelings um, about uh, unions, but also about unions' feelings about them, and about and how tense those discussions get. But when you boil it all off, about the things we're talking about—about about teacher placement, about teachers' evaluations, about teacher pay—all of those things are things that we should be able to have sober discussions about as representatives of the public, or the unions, or the the education system. And so I wanted to start that and just see what we could get about, what the role of unions are, maybe explain some of that, but then also talk about some of these issues and that case. And so we brought on David Miyashiro. He's the superintendent at Cajon Valley and his union rep, uh, the leader of the Cajon Valley Education Association, Chris Prokop, and then uh, San Diego Education Association, the teachers union for the San Diego Unified School District. They... uh, um uh, the leader, President Lindsey Burningham, came in, and uh, wonderful to talk to her. And then uh, a rank-and-file member, an activist, and uh, a leader for his own school site of San Diego Unified School District and the Education Association, Matthew Schneck. He came in and so got a good discussion. I thought it was great.
4: Yeah, I mean, the false narrative is that unions are about adults and that, you know, that the adversarialness comes from them being about adults and, and the districts being about Kids' interests, and that's that's completely untrue. I mean, teachers go into the profession because they love kids and want to spend a lot of time with kids. Some of them maybe lose that spark or that passion along the way, but um, there's a lot of room for common ground and a lot of room for constructive conversation. And a lot of that came out in the in the conversation we had with this panel.
3: Well, even if you believe that they um, they are those things, like they're not going away. <laughs> we so maybe we should figure out ways. Um, to find this common ground or also just to talk about the frustrations that people have and see what is, you know, what is real, what is something that we can talk about and what is just off limits. I asked him a couple of times like, okay, where does that cross into where we can't talk about it or we're we're being unconstructive or something? So I thought it was a good discussion. Uh, uh, It's not going to be the first, I hope. I hope we keep this up and uh, let us know what you think.
2: Good Schools for All is also made possible in part by Thrive Public Schools. Thrive Public Schools are charter public schools serving students in elementary, middle, and high school throughout San Diego. Thrive was named one of the top 75 schools in the nation and is celebrated by the state legislature and local officials for innovation and excellence in education. Thrive engages students through cutting-edge technology, hands-on projects, and small group teaching. Thrive students are college-prepared career-inspired and community-minded visit thriveps.org to schedule a tour and get engaged
3: okay we uh, have a very special uh, situation a square table of sorts in the great voice of san diego podcast studio and i am joined here with of course my co-host laura cohn but we're also joined by a group of people who are going to talk to us about the future and the current uh, status of uh, educator unions in in San Diego and across the country so First up um, on this round table, I have Matthew Schneck. He is a uh, member of uh, of the San Diego Education Association. He's an educator at East Village High. He's also the site representative for the union and uh, an active uh, person in the union. So welcome, Matt. Thank you for having me. And Lindsay Burningham. She is the president of the San Diego Education Association, the teachers union for the San Diego Unified School District. And uh, she joins us, Uh, she's a new mother. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having Chris me. Chris Prokop, and, uh, he is the edu- uh, Cone Valley, Valley uh, Education Association president and uh, he joins us. Uh, thank you for coming.
5: Pleasure to be here.
3: And David Miyash- Miyashiro, he is the superintendent of the Cone Valley Education Association our school district, and uh, he's been here before and kind of one of the people that ha- helped us think about this uh, show idea, and I-, I appreciate you coming in. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. I think you'll provide a good opportunity for us to see labor issues from the management side as well, too. Mm-hmm. So, all right, let's have a good discussion. I wanted to just um, start the effort with a kind of explanatory um, discussion, like help us understand what teachers unions do and uh, how the bargaining process works. And uh, maybe I could start with you, Chris, uh, about Cajon Valley. So you guys just settled uh, a new um, contract with the the administration at Cajon Valley? Correct. Uh, So tell us how that works, what kinds of things you talk about, and and how the deal came out.
5: Well, as the sole bargaining representative for the certificated staff in the Cajon Valley School District, we are mandated by law to represent the interests of the certificated employees. So we typically start that process uh, by going out and listening to our members to see what's interested what they're interested in the issues. It's, it's so much more than just salary and benefits and so much of, uh, especially our younger members or millennials coming into the profession are really interested in working conditions, uh, social justice issues that are impacting their students and how we can work with a district to meet those, those, those needs. Uh, so we, um, survey, uh, get a list of uh, priorities and we start talking with the district and, um, it's a series of meetings as we identified goals and needs, and we negotiate back and forth and uh, we settled just about a little over a month ago mm-hmm. and we actually settled a two year contract.
3: Mm-hmm. Is that normal two years?
5: no it's not it's it's a lot it takes a lot of variables in when we settle we we go and talk to our members about why we settled for this reason mm-hmm. and currently a lot has to do with the uh, state of the state budget and resources that we believe are coming in. And so, uh, it's not unlike uh, farmers looking at a tornado coming and saying, we need to get the crops in fast and put them in storage.
3: So, uh, David, help me understand from a, a superintendent's point of view, what issues are on the table and what are off, what is set by state law and what can you do to talk about school quality and school performance in these negotiations?
0: Uh, it's interesting. The state provides guidelines, and there are policies and ed codes. But at the local level, we have a lot of control. For example, class size. The state says that twenty-four to, or twenty-to-one when class size first came in, unless otherwise negotiated by the union and the district. So the teachers' union contract trumps uh, the state policy in a lot of cases. So a lot of things do come to local control. And that's why I think that local priorities and conversations that we have, the better the relationships that we have with both the governing board of a district, the association, and every, all the different uh, moving parts within the district office is important.
4: So how long did the negotiations take for you all to come to this um, agreement?
5: It varies and I'm, it can go from three to four sessions to places like Oceanside where they're over 500 days without a contract and they've mm-hmm. protracted. So it's really unique to the culture and the relationship that's between the association and, and, the, and the district. It's unique everywhere.
4: And you said that two years was not typical. What would be a typical union contract in California?
5: One, I'm gonna say one year, and Lindsay's gonna tell me otherwise. We, we do get to talk to lots of presidents throughout the state, so we have some perspective. Uh, typically one year, but occasionally, depending on the circumstances and the variables with budgeting, financing, what, what value the district gets, and having a longer contract, what value there is to the association, uh there's something sometimes we pilot new programs uh we have a modified monday not to get into the weeds too much but uh so that we can collaborate and our our certified staff can talk to each other about providing programs that are beneficial to kids uh we're piloting that uh, and district has an interest in maintaining that as well so it's different everywhere
4: honestly that's that's amazing to me that the typical contract is one year recognizing how much effort it takes for both of you to come to agreement. So yeah, I'm interested, Lindsay, in your perspective on length of contract.
6: So I would say for us, the typical contract is actually two to three years, two or three years, because um, as you said, the amount of time and energy that goes into not only bargaining the contract, but Um, The input process that Chris talked about, going out to our sites, getting input from our members, getting input from the community, from our parents as to what they want to see in their schools, Um, we typically aim to do a two or three year contract because that then gives us, once you've bargained that contract, a period of what we call, I guess you could say labor management piece, where it gives you the opportunity to then work on other projects Um, because bargaining takes a lot of time and energy. Um, We've been bargaining right now for seven months. Um, We bargain roughly two to three times a month. But in between then, you're also having meetings with your stakeholders. You're having meetings with the district trying to do other things. Um, And so in in SDEA and and in San Diego Unified, we've typically tried to aim for the two or three year contract. And that's currently what's on the table for us right now um, is either a two year agreement or a three year agreement. And what we end up getting to um, depends on our current reality and where we think the district budget is, where the state budget is, and, and what we think is going to be the best agreement for our members and our students in San Diego.
3: So one of the things that I saw recently, too, is at my own child's school and got a flyer uh, and it talked about a walkout, but it wasn't a walkout during school hours. It was just a kind of just an initial little shot maybe of just like hey this is what we could do Uh, there's some tensions or there's some ideas um it feels i talked to some friends who are teachers and they say there's some more tense discussions going on about uh about potential you know more hostile negotiations uh is are we getting to a point where this where your union is in in a tough situation with the district
6: so um i I wouldn't say hostile negotiations um We're still at the table, we're still negotiating, Um, but our district is currently in a um, budget deficit, Mm -hmm. is currently in a place where um, we don't have the level of money coming in to sustain the programs that our students and our schools need. Mm -hmm. And so we're in a period right now of figuring out for us, it's about budget priorities. Is is it the districts? Is the district spending the money they have in the best place to support the educators in supporting our students? Um, and so, November eighth was our pop up picket. Um, it wasn't a walkout. We did. We don't want to impact instruction at this point in time. This was really showing solidarity. Um, educators, parents, students coming together to say we support what SDEA is bargaining for. We support lower class sizes. We support per, um, supports for students. We yeah, support it was an acronym
3: LEARN. Right? LEARN. Okay. Yeah.
6: Yeah. It's lower class sizes, enrichment opportunities, attracting and retaining um, resources for students, and then no destabilizing cuts. That's what LEARN stands for. And that's really um, those goals, those pieces came from our members, came from the parents in the community on what they wanted to see in their school.
3: One of the, and I'm going to bring Matthew in in a sec, but just one quick point. One of the pieces of tension between SDAA and the school district in the past has been the idea of um, the, the budget itself, whether it was real news or not, right? Whether the deficits that the district claimed were real, um, whether the finances were truly as bad. And so when you just said that there was a deficit, um, you acknowledge there is less money coming in um, than, than maybe the budget spending rate is. And so it's it's a matter of priorities. You're saying that there could be still cuts that could avoid layoffs, but could also support the kind of um, recruitment and salaries that you hope to see?
6: So we've always disagreed at what the level of the deficit is. Right. I think nobody's going to say that there's not financial situations in our district. It's to what level that's at. Okay. Um, and when you are in a budget situation where you don't have huge influxes of money, it comes back to priorities. Mm-hmm. It comes back to prioritizing supports for students, prioritizing supports for our schools versus um central office positions or new programs or consultants or things like that. So when there is a budget situation, it's not about whether or not you have the money. It's about how you're going to spend it.
3: Right. And one last thing before I turn to Matthew. So at what point do you hope to finish these latest rounds of negotiations?
6: We always want to finish as fast as possible. Because as I said, once you can get that contract bargained, um, you can direct your attention to really building programs and working together to sustain those programs and to and best support our students, um, our educators, and right now, as Chris was talking about, some of those social justice issues, supporting our communities and our parents, and that's really, um, I would say, the best part of my job is when we can really go out there, work with our schools, work with the communities, and, and build those programs versus having to sit at the bargaining table back and forth, so I'm hopeful, hopefully in the next few months. Um, we're seven months in now, but um, we'll see where it goes.
3: All right. All right, Matthew. Let me ask you. So you're you're one of those teachers that probably gets um, surveyed about what your priorities, are, your worries, your um, concerns are, your uh, things that you'd like to see in the contract negotiations. But you've also been outspoken. Part of the reason I wanted to bring you on is you've been outspoken about the district needing to do more to recognize true vulnerabilities and perhaps um, uh, being open and honest about those. And so, what when you look at what the your priorities are as as just a, a rank and file? Um, person in this district, what do you see and what do you hope that the union um, pushes for and what could it do better?
1: I think one of the strongest things that um, SDA has done is uh, get a class size cap of 36 students in, in the secondary level. Um, I'm very fortunate where I'm at, where um, our class sizes are not quite that big um, at at East Village High School. But um, to me, that's, some, that's something that currently, uh, based on what the uh, school district has proposed, um, to cut. Is that is that correct, Lindsay, to say? Um, to, or to weaken to, re- to weaken the class size protection. So we have currently 36 is the cap. You can't put more than 36 students in a classroom, um, but the district's current proposal is to weaken that.
4: So how do you, as a rank-and-file teacher, keep tabs on what's going on in the bargain? Do you, you know, are I know you're not at the table and they can't um, sort of violate the sanctity of the, of the negotiating table. So how do you stay connected to it?
1: So SDA is really good about sending emails out um, pretty weekly and definitely after bargaining sessions to kind of tell us where the district is at, what tentative agreements have been made um, as well as uh, what proposals the district is making, what proposals SDA is making. So, uh, that's probably the the best way for members to stay informed about the bargaining session. Um, I read them all the time because I want to know where the where the district is, um, or if we're moving closer to negotiation or to uh, finalizing our contract or not.
4: How about parents? How how do parents' perspectives come to the negotiating table? I'm interested, um, Cajon Valley, and how you how you felt like that uh, worked in your most recent bargain.
0: That's a good question. I. I our board members, our our parents in the district, I think they are very well informed, and by word of mouth, um, we talk. But that's not something that I think that the parent community is is deeply knowledgeable about. To to, to be honest with you, I would I would think that.
5: I agree with David. Um, we always look at bargaining with either an external or an internal message, and. Typically, we talk to parent groups to find out if they're happy. What, uh, how do they feel about, uh, you know, unique? We have a large Chaldean population in East County. Are our newcomer kids getting their needs met? And we do that. Make a lot of contacts through the local control accountability plan process, where all the stakeholders are there. But when we get down to the bargaining process, it's really a discussion between the association and and the district. Um, uh, we would say you know we listen to our community groups, but not necessarily so to the point where there we don't have parents that sit in at bargaining. Uh, it, I'm not sure how that would. Can impact. I jump back in? Sure. Um, so I think that to our
0: credit, the last several years we've had uh, very amicable negotiations and uh, really good communication both with the unit and the board, and. If that weren't the case, I think maybe our parent community would be very well informed because maybe if the district wasn't doing right by the teachers, then the teachers would need to show the parents uh, that the district was undervaluing them. And so I'd say that our parents haven't been quite informed, but because they haven't needed to be, perhaps.
3: So part of what I want to follow up, I, I'm curious, This and this follows up with uh, this point, is uh, you we're on the podcast not too long ago and you talked about how you have a special relationship with the with the union you've a- been able to pursue innovations innovations along school performance and, and teacher performance and innovations along personalized learning and you've been able to do that because of the partnership so what does that mean like what are you uh, do you feel like they're more um, easy to work with or you or you're just you're just better
0: friends how does this work well in in five different districts I've worked now the the teachers association leadership have been some of the most innovative and best teachers in the school district. And that's absolutely the case in Cajon Valley. Um, so one, I think negative assumptions could hurt the process. So if if a district leadership assumes or that teachers don't want to give their very best work or, or don't care about quality in the classroom, then the behaviors of the district and leadership are going to be to micromanage and to not trust and to not include. Um, if the positive assumptions are that districts like ours assumes that teachers came into the profession to make a difference, that they work really hard, that they care deeply about their craft and improvement, then the way that we treat and respond is going to be inclusive and to trust them and to involve them in decision making and i think that that culture that we have has enabled us to move forward quickly. The other thing i would say is leadership matters. So Chris Prokop, without Chris, i don't know that we could have done the things we've done over the last 4 years so quickly or at all. So to say unions are good or bad, that's that's a wrong statement. The union is as good as its president, as its executive board, just as a district is as strong as its superintendent or its governing board. Leadership makes a huge difference.
4: I mean, it seems so obvious to me that a constructive relationship between management and union is going to result in better education for kids. That, And yet, in most cases, it's not as productive as it could be or is not as productive, for example, as we're hearing about in Cajon Valley and as I believe it is in San Diego as well. So what is the differentiator? You know, Do, do you think the biggest differentiator between those um, productive relationships versus more adversarial ones is the union leadership or, or the uh, point of view of the superintendent or what other things might or do tend to get in the way of having um, that kind of relationship?
1: Uh,
5: yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh all of that uh it's 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 uh, in any large bureaucracy you you have culture you have past history you have climate you have all of that impacts but ultimately i think it came down to when david was hired and we first met we both realized that we wanted the same thing the te- teachers counselor, psychologist, and Uh, speech and language pathologists and nurses that we represent all want a quality program and they want it to be innovative and creative and 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 reflective of their uh, goals and uh, their thoughts and from the beginning uh, David Miyashiro wanted to know what we thought and when you start like that and you have a, a beginning we we can work together do we agree about everything no of course not but he asks, and that permeates down to assistant superintendents, to program directors, to coordinators, people who are running the programs that impact our kids, and to the point now, in this far into David's um, tenure, that our employer cares about their teachers in discipline, in in medical situations that impact our members, into uh, even discipline that ha- uh, happens not very. Often with the quality of instructors that we have, but when it does, there's a care and concern that comes forward everywhere from district administration. It's very unique. I've been doing this for I've been a te- educator for over 30 years, and it, it creates a climate that we can do our best work for kids.
3: Okay, so th- that's there's a lot of big concepts there, but what about specifics? like did, what were you able to achieve? because of this relationship, specifically in in how uh, kids are educated or how teachers are placed or perform, that sort of thing?
0: Well, specifically, when when I started, we had a technology desert. Mm -hmm. So maybe a school had a computer lab with Windows 98. So a kid might touch a computer once every couple weeks. In the first year, we were able to establish a program where every child had a computer for their learning, which meant huge shifts in pedagogy and teaching and learning new technologies. Um, that was massive, but that was just the beginning because that led the way to different types of, of philosophy and classroom management and programs that you're able to offer when every kid has a screen. It's not a static textbook. There are other things that they can do and access in computer science, in TED Talks, and some of the things that we've gone forward with in big initiatives that, um, yeah, they're, they're tangible.
3: What you're talking about is, is flexibility, right? I mean, at the heart of a lot of these discussions is flexibility, that there's maybe an idea of how education could be better, or there's even flexibility in how teachers are placed. So Lindsay, I want to ask you, obviously one of the first things that comes up when people express frustration about teachers union, blame them for um, maybe um, some schools that aren't doing well and stuff like that, they point at that. They say flexibility in being able to hire and, and fire and place teachers and flexibility in in, in, in in introducing new technologies and new styles, that that stops with an organization like yours. What would you say when somebody brings that up?
6: I would say our, our union is all about innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, it really truly is about putting together the supports and programs that our students and educators need to be successful. Um, Yes, flexibility can be helpful, but at the same time, flexibility can also um, harm students and and harm schools if it's not used in a way um, that is fair and it is equitable. Um, That flexibility has given us the opportunity to bring innovative programs into the district, programs that are led by the union. Mm -hmm. Um, They're talking about kind of innovation and how they work together. Um, We're uh, reaching an agreement right now on a parent-teacher home visit project which is bringing something new that was started as a pilot by the union, funded by the California Teachers Association and and NEA, which is all about building relationships between schools and communities. Um, That came from the union. That didn't come from the district. That that was an idea from us of having teachers going out into the community, visiting the homes of their students, building those relationships, learning about what parents and students need. Um, And so unions are all about innovation. It's not about blocking anything, but it's about innovating and it's about really supporting a public education system that's going to give our students, no matter their zip code, no matter where they live, where they come from, giving them the education and supports that they need.
3: So when I think of, um, like you talked about zip codes, So one thing that comes up um, in, in discussions here and there, the the issue of like La Jolla, the La Jolla cluster in the San Diego Unified School District, they have a special arrangement where they're able to um, pick more liberally from the qualified teachers for... Who gets to teach in the La Jolla Cluster? Not true? Not true. Okay, explain that to me. The,
6: is, uh, the La Jolla Cluster follows the same contract as everywhere else. I would actually say um, some of our struggling schools are the ones that actually have a more um, liberal process for picking. Oh. Um, where student schools that um, were in struggling areas, it t- previously API 1 through 3 schools, we don't have API anymore, um, but it's still kind of using those schools, actually get a full list of people of who... Um, they're going to hire um, for their areas, and um, other schools get um, a list based on seniority with only a select few. La Jolla did ask to do that, and that was declined because we feel that that wasn't fair, that wasn't equitable, and it wouldn't have been what was best for students. So th- so that-
3: I, I—, I- I just was misinformed. That's just an old was that an old policy or was just or just one that just It didn't was work?
6: something they attempted to do and it was denied by both the district and the union. Okay. It was something that we did not support. They asked for a what's called a contract waiver um and SDEA denied that waiver which means it's denied by the district as well.
3: Okay. Interesting. Thank you. Um so on the issue of the um the, you, you guys mentioned before the program about this E3 program from the county and something that comes up often, and we we were talking with the uh, the leader of the union in in Poway about some very proactive teacher evaluation practices that they were trying to work on and that they had been doing for a long time to um, sort of counsel those who are struggling out if they needed to be, but also coach those who might be struggling but might have some potential as educators. So I think obviously this is another fault line that um, that a lot of people who talk about education, Come down on it's either it's often just a binary, but is it so binary? And what is this program as you described it? E three.
6: Um, so it's the educator effectiveness and evaluation program, and it's actually something that both um, San Diego Unified and Cajon Valley are working on. Um, and it's a collaborative program bringing together um, educators, union leadership, and district management to build a professional growth system. Um, so there's, as you said, evalu- teacher evaluation is one of those things that's always out there. People either love it, they hate it, it's good, it's bad. But this is really about providing meaningful feedback to teachers. We want that feedback. We want to grow as professionals. And we often find that pr- the professional development we're getting, the support we're getting, not isn't actually what we need. And that people at different parts of their career actually need different kinds of support. Um, And through this E3 program, we're able to, from the ground up, develop a system that meets the needs of both the district, that fits within the regulations of ed code, but also meets the needs of our educators um, and providing them the feedback. And one of the things that we're really excited about um, is the mentoring and coaching aspect of educators actually being able to be supported by somebody that's doing their same job I had the opportunity of being part of an amazing kindergarten team when I was at my school. I received so much support and grew so much as an educator because of the educators I was working alongside. And so creating a system that provides those kinds of supports to our educators, no matter what classroom they're in, what school they're in, is something we're really excited about and is something that we've been able to start the process of working on with the district. Um, And we'll hopefully have a new system within the next year or two that we'll be able to bargain into our contract. Um, It's gonna be piloted this next school year. Um, and and really move from there.
4: So Matthew, I see you nodding your head. What what are the teachers' interests in having a better professional growth system?
1: So I think there's a long running joke in San Diego Unified that our current style objectives don't really. It's us creating these goals and then putting a bunch of paperwork together to prove that you've met those goals. And your principal kind of comes in, observes you once, and that's kind of it. And it's 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 not. Teachers want to grow, um, and I, it's exciting to kind of hear that, you know, there, there's something coming down the pipeline where um, we're going to be able to get mentored or um, improve our craft.
3: So where does it cross the line, though, of, of where a, an evaluation goes from being helpful, being constructive, to being something that you won't have, that you can't, that, that is that is destructive or that you feel like won't uh, won't add to the value? I'm going to start with Lindsay and then I'm going to hear what the cohen value guys have.
6: Um, so I think... And I talked about it before when we were talking about schools, but a lot of the work we do, I think, comes down to a process that is fair and equitable, a process that provides coaching and support, um, that provides that to everyone, no matter where they're at. But in a situation where somebody might be struggling, there's different tiers then of coaching and support that they need to figure out, can this teacher be supported to improve? Or does this teacher need to be doing something different? And so we have different systems in place. We have a peer assistance and review program. Um, We have remediation plans. There's all sorts of different um, progressive steps to go through in order to ensure that every educator, you start at a a place where every educator is provided um, good, real professional development, coaching, and support. And that works for 95% of the educators, I would say, we have in our district. And there's a handful of people that need more. And so having our administration provide them the additional support they need, whether it's through a PAR program, whether it's through um, professional development, whatever it may be, and then going through that process to figure out, can this person be coached? Can they be supported? And can we give them what they need? Or do we need to go through a different process, um, whether it's their probationary and it's non-reelection, whether it's going through the dismissal or suspension process, whatever it may be. But there's processes in place, and so it's developing a system that supports everybody but also allows for districts because that is, you talked about before, what is districts the district's role or responsibility? They do need to make sure that their educators are doing what they need and meeting expectations. And
3: I think at the heart of that, as any manager would say, like you have to have that space where there's a point where you just need to tell that person that that's not going to be the place for them that this job is not the place for them and if these conditions aren't met and so i think what a lot of people worry about that that's not available in the public education system and in particular that comes up with the probationary period right there's this two-year period before they move into more permanent status and um uh, i'll turn to you real quick well chris answer that so uh, is uh, two years enough to have the flexibility to, to, well, to talk about you, that with them. You that.
5: have to answer that question in the context of a growing teacher shortage, where forty research shows that 46% of teachers are gone in the first five years of their profession because they find out how difficult and challenging a, prof, uh, a job it is. So when you take that into context and you have our youngsters coming into our, our profession, over half of them in tens of thousands of dollars of debt that they went into just so they can work with kids. Um, probationary period of two years to me. Uh, I don't know if you know the history of that, but I think it's, it's a good a compromise. Um, teachers associations, uh, contrary to popular myth, do not protect bad educators. We protect, and Lindsay touched on this uh, uh process, due process rights. One place where our association and our district leadership are really working together was in the area of what constitutes a bad evaluation. We started talking five, six years ago, and we started using the same language so that when a member would contact us, said, I've received needs improvement, we would get all of the documentation, look at it and say, oh, there's holes here. Or we would say, you know what? they did their job. They, You have a documentation, you have frequent observations, here's where you were directed to do this, is this all true? So when we're speaking the same language, we understand each other, and um, it, it makes it a lot easier, and you know, we're here to provide the best education possible for our kids, and uh, mm. we've been able to do that. But.
3: Do you agree with that, David? Is two years enough to, have the flexibility to to, um, deal with teachers that may be struggling?
0: I would like to have more time because it's not really two years because we have to decide by March, so it's really uh, 18 months. Mm -hmm. Um, Reflecting on the teacher evaluation process as both a teacher and a school principal, it was one of the things I hated most about the job. So as a teacher, one, because that one day or two days a year that the principal came to observe me didn't highlight the things that I felt were best about me as a teacher. The things that were on that checklist were not the things that I think that valued most or mattered most. And I got good evaluations, but I didn't even feel that the principal really got to know me as a teacher through the process. And then as a principal, I hated it, one, because it's an enormous time consumer. Uh, The process that the districts I worked for had. And the same thing, too, it was meaningless in terms of the feedback that the teacher actually got through this tool and the way that I could communicate with them. So when you look at strengths and teachers that bring multiple strengths to the table, you might have a a fourth grade team where one teacher is really strong in bringing arts into the curriculum. One teacher is really strong in planning mathematical practices and different teachers bring different strengths. The teacher evaluation process isolates teachers and gives them feedback individually and doesn't foster collaboration or utilizing strengths to provide equity and access to all the teacher strengths through a curricular process, so I think that this process with um, feedback and coaching that that SDEA and Cohen Valley are involved with, with some other other districts are partnering as well, um, will bring that back to more trusting teachers that they do want to make a difference and giving them more control over the feedback and coaching process.
4: Yeah, it sounds like um, you're headed in a positive direction. So you just you mentioned to us that you're working with the San Diego County Office of Education to on this E3 process. So you're learning together, I guess, about alternative approaches to that. Were you able to integrate some of the E3 philosophy and framework into the contract that you just concluded? And Lindsay, are you aiming for that in the, in the negotiations you're in right now?
6: So we haven't yet, but we have agreed that when that is ready, we will have a contract reopener to bargain it into the contract. So we want—we don't want to bargain it in now because we haven't piloted it yet. We want to make sure it's going to work. You want to make sure it's not something that you just create and you haven't even tried it out. So once it goes through the pilot process, we have already reached agreement that that will be a contract reopener that when that new system is ready, it will be bargained into our contract through the bargaining process.
5: Exactly in the same place as uh, SDA and and San Diego Unified. And we've even gone so far as to start getting trained on Best practices from taking pilots and upscaling them to district wide because there's challenges in that. So, just because you have a good program that you work collaboratively to develop doesn't mean it's going to be implemented correctly. So, we're even looking at that. And that's a lot, greatly due to David's leadership in looking at innovative and creative practices and, and how best to make them work in a large school district.
3: Matthew, um, I want to follow up on a point you made about this. Um, you were talking about how removed it felt in, in some ways. Um, do you feel like the current uh, evaluation system and how you're observed um, is, is at all beneficial? And also, do you feel like, I mean, as a, you probably see peers out there that shouldn't be in these roles or that should get a lot of help or something. Are they, are, is this system in place to do that?
1: I mean, it's not within it's not within anyone's best interest to have um, bad teachers in the classroom. But at the same time, it is. I don't know if I've actually seen, at my own side, I've not seen a bad teacher. Um, I have seen teachers that may need more support. And no, I don't think the current evaluation process that we have in San Diego Unified, um, the the stole, where we have to create stole objectives, um, is effective in helping me grow or any other teacher for that matter. Um, It's really easy to put on a dog and pony show if that's something that you want to do if you know your principal's gonna come in for one day to go watch what you're gonna do. Um, So that's why looking at evaluation models that focus on on growth and and, and mentoring and um, I would assume, depending on where it goes, having the principal come in multiple times, having multiple people watch you um, would make more sense.
3: Is there a place for student or parent evaluations? Currently, no. No, I mean, not there obviously isn't now, but should there be?
1: I question student evaluation um, only because would it become a popularity contest? Would it be, oh, this teacher's really hard um, or really rigorous, and I don't like the fact that I didn't get an A, so I'm gonna go and Mm -hmm. rate them poorly.
6: I would say that there's a place for student and parent feedback, Mm -hmm. Um, whether it's evaluation. I think that's something different. As Matt said, there is um, some concerns with it being a popularity contest. And just because you didn't like a grade, you're then rating somebody wrong. But we do have educators within our district that have created their own parent and student feedback surveys that are anonymous that they use personally. It's not something that's sent to their administrator, sent to their district. Um, but we have seen successful I've, I've uses of myself. parent and student feedback where you do, as an educator, use that feedback to help you grow. Um, and that could be considered part of the professional growth system. It depends on just how it's used and in which manner it's used.
3: So we're talking about some of the most tense issues in education, really. These things obviously blow up in in some ways. And yet we're all fine, right? We're all here having this conversation. At what point do you think it turns to something where it gets that toxicity? Where it, what what causes this kind of discussion about evaluations, about placement, and about um, tenure or, or permanency? At what point does that cross to something unhelpful, Chris?
5: Well, I'm going to tell you that in my experience, and I'll. Be interested to hear what Lindsay has to say as well. It's when someone who has a political agenda is trying to advance uh, a, a certain attitude, or let's say somebody who's trying to uh, weaken public education to to the growth of uh, you know for-profit charter schools. So we see what happened. it's happening up in L.A. Unified, and they're not talking about kids. They're they're trying to weaken associations. They're trying to grab a part of a trillion-dollar industry. And uh, that's, to me, where where politics come into public education. It gets toxic. Also, when ignorance and, and people get their backs up, uh, it becomes an ego issue. I've seen that in associations as well as, as districts. I mean, where there's a lose-lose, I'm-not-going-to-lose situation. So...
3: So let me just follow that up real quick. So, how? What tips could you give somebody who wants to have these discussions about evaluations and about teacher performance and all that, without that being the line that's been crossed? Without being accused of being part of that political um, destruction?
5: Well, in Cajon Valley, we 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 started all discussions with. I think we both want the same thing.
3: We we. It's a matter of respect.
5: Yeah, it was. You know, and. Because this is our employer, they're going to greatly impact our ability to deliver services to children. They control our working conditions, uh, the curriculum that we teach, and how they approached us was, "Hey, we want your input." Um, we welcome those discussions with with community members, political figures. You know, we we have a very innovative, creative uh, uh, program out in East County. But if you look at our political representation, we're fairly to the right and we're able to do that because we have a wonderful, uh, uh, educated board that we all work to help uh, get elected and the community generally wants the best for kids. So we've been able to keep all of that out of what's happening in our, our public schools because I think because we've been so successful.
6: Yeah, so
4: oh Yeah, David first.
0: I would say I go back to negative assumptions in leadership. Um, no child left behind policy really focused on sticks, not even carrots, just sticks. You know, punish teachers, shame them, shame school, shame school leaders and then race to the top and in, in, infuse carrots to the sticks, you know. Here's money if you do this and if you tie teacher evaluation to this and those both failed miserably. But but at the leadership level if if the leadership focuses on culture and respect and trust, then how these tools of evaluation become a different thing. And they could be the same tool, but if you have a, a leader that's a micromanager or that assumes bad things about um, employees, then that tool becomes a really heavy stick that can be used for evil. So I go back to leadership and, and positive assumptions is, is what we need to start with.
4: Yeah. So, okay. So leadership and, and trust are really key and not... Bringing politics to the table is another key. But when resources are scarce, that tends to make the relationship more tense. You were alluding to that earlier, Lindsay. How, to say a little bit more about um, how the differing perspectives of the union and management around the health of the budget get worked through.
6: So I think Chris hit on a big piece is People have to believe that you're coming to the table with positive intentions, with um, we are all here in order to support students. We are all here in order to give students what they need to be successful. Um, And sometimes what we believe students need differs. Sometimes the district administration believes one thing, we believe another, and it's really about coming together, having those hard conversations Yes. Sometimes you have to duke it out. Sometimes you go out and you do pickets if you believe that that's what's in the best interest. And ultimately, you have to believe um, that everybody is in this with the right intentions um, and that ultimately we will get the schools our students and our communities deserve. Um, One of the things we need to do that is to improve public education funding. That's one of the things that we're talking about at the bargaining table is the reason why we're having a difficult time is because we don't actually have the money we need to give our students everything they need. And so we need to work together as union leadership, as district leadership in Sacramento, in Washington, D.C., and improve public education funding with things such as 20 by 2020, which is $20,000 per ADA by the year 2020. It's a big number, but... You need to reach high in order to get what your kids need.
3: ADA being average daily tenants. Yes. And that's the the sort of Per money pupil funding. That yep. each school gets. Okay, so let's talk about funding for a second. One thing that uh, a school board member, Richard Barrera, mentioned um, at uh, after a uh, recent speech he gave was that he was considering um, putting on the ballot or helping to get onto the ballot some kind of Property tax or real estate transfer fee or something that would raise money for the San Diego Unified School District. I remember him and I talking way back in 2010. They put a parcel tax on it, got more than 50% of the vote, but it needed two thirds. This time there's a thinking that a some sort of private initiative might only need a simple majority. Um, is that something you're working on?
6: Not currently. Um, we are really in the in bargaining right now, 100%. That's another reason why we need to get bargaining done so that we can focus on those other things. But um, depending on how it's written and depending on where that money would be going, that would absolutely be something our union would support um, if we can ensure that that money is transparent, accountable, and going towards what we believe are the priorities our schools and students need.
3: That is kind of an awkward chronology though, right? If, if you guys negotiate a raise that might cause a budget shortfall and then put the tax increase on, that might be an argument that the tax increases to fund the raise, right?
6: So I, I don't I don't necessarily see it that way. If okay. we end up bargaining a raise, that's because we bargain that because that's what our schools and our students and our educators needed. One of the reasons why we bargain raises isn't to put money in the pockets of educators. It's to ensure that we can actually have educators filling classrooms in our students and supporting our students, it's a recruitment tool. If we don't have those raises, our educators are gonna leave and go to Cajon Valley. They're gonna leave and go to somewhere else and then they're they're not gonna be there. And so, yes, sometimes those things are tied together, but it really comes back to priorities and budget priorities. The money you have, the pot that you have, where does that money need to go? And if it's through parcel taxes, if it's through Prop 13 reform, if it's through sales tax initiatives, if it's through lottery money, all of that money We need to figure out what's the best way to spend it in order to support our students and in order to support a public education system that our communities deserve.
3: Every time we talk about school funding, somebody emails and says, what about the lottery money? (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right, let me ask you one other point on this. Let's say somebody sat down and said, "I'm, I'm interested in supporting this with you. Maybe some sort of transfer tax, some sort of revenue increase, but I would want to see something of good faith about teacher evaluation reform also has packaged this. Let's work this out. Let's solve this problem as you've described. Are those two conversations something you can have at the same time or must they be separate?
6: You can have the conversation. I can't guarantee that we're going to get to a common place where we agree. Um, But we're, as Chris said, always open and willing to have those dialogues and conversations. Um, And again, we're trying to move away from evaluation being seen as something bad and it more being growth and development. Um, And so if it was something about growth and development, absolutely, now if you said it's gonna be tied to the state standardized test scores, for me personally, I would say that's a non-starter. Because one test score of one student on one day does not tell you the success of a student or the success of an educator. Um, Test scores, I would say, would be a non-starter. When it comes to evaluation professional growth, I wouldn't say that's a non-starter, but we need to be looking at student growth in a much bigger picture and not just based on a standardized test score.
5: And and with all due respect, I haven't seen any research that ties poor teacher performance to, you know, I almost deny the premise that it's because we have poor evaluation language that schools are failing.
3: I don't hold that premise. I do think there's, there's obviously some schools doing better than others. Right. We need to figure out what that is. but let me Poverty? Ask,
6: it, it usually comes to resources. Po- mm-hmm. Poverty. That usually it comes to resources. Do I mean, there those, is a
3: direct correlation yes. between student
1: Do test scores. Do those kids
6: have a home to go to every night? Do they have food in their stomach when they go to bed and when they come to school in the morning? Do they have books at home? Do, does that school have the resources they need? As you said, schools in La Jolla, schools in Scripps Ranch have foundations that sometimes give their students more than other schools. That's not yeah. a teacher evaluation, a teacher effectiveness thing. It comes down to resources, whether it be resources at home or resources within the district. Come
5: to Cajon Valley, inner city El Cajon, not not exactly high socioeconomic area. We have some of our most innovative, creative, productive schools. Uh, and David can really, mm-hmm. I mean, we. It's because we provide a great program for those kids. It's resources. <laughs> Question, Laura? <laughs> well, yeah,
4: so poverty matters, but there are also schools in Cajon Valley, is a uh, an exemplar on this, that are serving low-income kids and they're really hitting it out of the park. So it's not, poverty's not the only factor. There's there's more going on than that.
0: So to go back to Scott's point about um, if we were to come together and look at, okay, we'll give st- school districts the support if you tie it to evaluation, I would agree with a table that t- tying it to test scores is a non- non-starter. I think we look, need to look at different metrics, because when we have uh, six million unemployed in America and seven million unfilled high-wage, high-demand jobs, that's an education problem. And when the microscope of Cajon Valley, which is you know, competes with Vista for un, under disengaged youth, ages 16 to 24, not in the school and not employed, those are some issues. So I think that if we change the metrics to happy kids engaged in healthy relationships. On a path to gainful employment, and we had some type of measurement to to gauge whether that's happening, and we follow those kids on a LinkedIn profile after they leave the system to see are they actually happy still, are they in healthy relationships, are they gainfully employed, and when, you never hear the term college and career ready, standardized test scores. It's all about the outcomes. What happens to kids after they leave our system? Because I would argue that the K12 system altogether is designed for the age of industrialism. And we need to re, re- pivot and look at alternative
3: measures. And I think if we do that, then you'll start to see massive growth. All right, well, we're running a little late on time. Thank you so much. Um, but I do wanna ask about one thing that's going on, and this is at the Supreme Court, the US Supreme Court. There's a case called uh, Janus versus the American Federation of uh, State, County, and Municipal Employees which at the heart of it, of course, is, is this idea of a man who feels like he shouldn't have to pay teacher or uh, union dues, um, even though he's part of a collective bargaining unit. And uh, the law in Illinois says that uh, you have to pay a fee um, because of the benefits you get from being part of that unit. Um, that case at the Supreme Court looks like there's a, a potential majority on the Supreme Court that may make it impossible to collect union dues from uh, people who are not actually members of the union, which has been interpreted as a major potential threat to teachers' unions and to their um, uh, influence in the political system. Uh, Lindsay, or Chris, uh, Lindsay, first, what's your thinking on that case? What kinds of impacts would it have uh, should it be decided uh, contrary to the unions?
6: So I'll say the goal of that case is to weaken unions. The goal of that case is not about whether it's fair to pay union dues or not. It's about weakening unions. Um, and I'll say um, for SDEA, for CTA, um, we're not going to let that stop us from being able to advocate for our students and advocate for public education. Could it make it harder? Absolutely, because there might now be freeloaders that are going to reap the benefits of having a contract that protects their hours, their working conditions, and whatnot. But at the same time, our educators know how important it is for their voice to be heard when it comes to advocating for students, when it comes to things being done in our school system that's best for students and it's best for public education. Um, So it's going to make our job a little bit harder, but it's not going to stop us from being tireless advocates for not only our students, but for public education in general and for the, the schools that our communities deserve
5: absolutely um i think these these people came at us with three uh, over the last 12 years three ballot initiatives that tried to accomplish the same thing the uh people of the state of california are pretty smart and they value education they saw through these attempts uh now through the courts they're going to probably achieve what they think is a success i, I always like to tell our members that when we had the highest percentage of american workers in unions was in the 70s, prior to agency fee. So it's just gonna require us to do our job a little differently, but we always will need to have a voice in what happens in our schools. We'll always need to represent uh, our members' working conditions, our kids' learning conditions. And so this is just a momentary setback for us. It'll just change the way we, we do things. Uh, I do like to point out that the state of California filed amicus brief Uh, When the Friedrichs case, which was similar to this, because the state of California, the Cajon Valley Union School District, the San Diego Unified School District have a vested interest in having a stable relationship with their employee groups. You know, prior to collective bargaining in 1975, it was the Wild West. You 920 teachers in my district, you'd have 920 separate contracts with different Uh, working conditions uh, apply differently in, in, and I don't mean to go on and on here, but we we have pay equity in public education in the state of California. There is no glass ceiling for women, and that was achieved through collective bargaining. So we're not about to give up on all of that, and we're just gonna change the way we do business and and keep advocating for kids.
0: Quick point, so in Cajon Valley, and I think it's the, the case in lots of places, When the union leadership is strong and there's good relationships between the bargaining units and the district, then the association is not only good for teachers, it's good for the children they serve. It's a way that we ensure equity and access to these programs to all kids because the union as an organization, they organize around the contract, but they also organize around implementation and equity for kids. And if we lose that, I'm concerned about the quality and the reach of, of the curriculum and the innovations for
3: all kids. All right. David Meishiro, uh, superintendent at the Cologne Valley um, School District. Uh, uh, Chris Prokop uh, from the Cologne Valley Education Association. Lindsay Burningham from the San Diego Associati- Education Association. And Matthew Schneck, thank you so much, uh, all of you, uh, for joining. I think it was a productive conversation. Maybe we can have a part two. Uh, so thanks for coming in. Thank, thank, you. thank you
1: for having us.